Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host as always, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio and The Beacon. We are now one. We are now one. (laughs) Joining me in studio is... Jason Rosenbaum of St. Louis Public Radio and The Beacon. I think we're only going to do this once. <laughs> and Joe Manist with the St. Louis Public Radio slash Beacon. Yes. <laughs> and our special guest this week is? State Representative Michael Butler. Now, your district covers St. Louis um, for a little bit. Tell us a little bit about you know what parts of St. Louis. So the easiest way to describe my district is the three-mile radius around St. Louis University. So I go north up to Fairground Park and Highway 70. Neighborhoods Hyde Park, Neighborhood Fairgrounds South, JVL. And I go all the way south to Tower Grove Park and Arsenal, Tower Grove East, Benton Park, Fox Park, Lafayette Square, those neighborhoods. Uh, parts of downtown, I go all the way downtown, half of Washington Avenue, and even far west at Central West End, I have parts of Central West End. Um, the best part about the, that district is I, the reason I'm so in love with it is because I'm from that district. I grew up in mm-hmm. many areas. I've lived on the north side of the Del Mar Divide and the south side of the Del Mar Divide. I have family on both sides of, of, of St. Louis City. And um, my grandfather taught at Vashon High School right in the middle of my district. My father went to Roosevelt High School right on the on the far south side of my district, and I, and it's just a great place to call home. And so the 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 play the way I always wanted to represent an area an area that I grew up in. Well, now you're a first district, I mean first term state rep, yeah. correct? Yes. And your contest had been one of the more combative ones. Yes. You want to talk just briefly about that? Oh, yeah. That was very interesting. It, it was it was a good time to get into the, the game, in a sense. It was a good time to be running for election. Uh, what happened was I was the supreme underdog, in a sense. Yes, you were and, Martin Cassis. And I can tell you from right now, Joe, that I knew from day one that I was going to win this race. From the day I knocked on my first door, I had no doubt that I was going to win. My Me and my team did the, the homework on our district. We knew who was there. We knew what to do. And we just we executed our plan, and everything turned out great. And Martin Cassis, obviously, he had more money than you. He had a lot of endorsements. He's a he's an overall good guy. He actually once crashed my my wedding because <laughs> he used to own a film company and he showed up after our wedding reception. And he was head of the Young Democrats of St. Louis, correct? Uh, yes, he, he, he was, was. Uh, also known as the Southside Golden Child. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I I will say that uh, what what we did what we made sure to do was. Uh, we knew that he had an 8-to-1 financial advantage on us. We knew that he had a 10-to-1 endorsement advantage on us. But what mattered most to us was, the, was people, was getting to the people in the district. And we knocked, me and my team knocked the entire district five times. Now, why don't you give people a little bit of your background, just okay. uh, briefly. I mean, where you're from? Okay. Originally from St. Louis, uh, from the south side of St. Louis. What you do for a living? I, I, uh, before I was a state representative, I was an aide, a legislative aide in a state center, Robin Wright Jones' office. Before that, state rep Mary Winstill's office. I have a master's degree in public affairs where I, I graduated from there in 2011. Uh, I also spent some time during my campaign. I worked as a substitute teacher in the St. Louis Public School District. Uh, I've done a lot of things since I graduated from college, and and uh, um, to end that out, once I graduated from college, I was worked at Walmart at their home office. I worked as a manager in Benville, Arkansas, which was a great experience. But it actually led me into public service. <laughs> really? <laughs> Why is that? Well, you know, you get we're we're of that generation where you're making a, even if you make a lot of money and you you uh, you you may be doing something that everyone seems is prestigious. You want to affect change in, in America. You want to change something in your neighborhood. And I remember being in Walmart and thinking, you know, 
what I'm doing, I'm making a good check, but it's, it doesn't change the world. My, me and my colleagues get mad at little things that happen, and I couldn't stress out about it. I'd only stress out about the fact that what I did every day did, did nothing to change the lives of normal Americans. So what's the difference between being a legislative aide and being a legislator? I'm sure there, there's a huge difference because you actually vote on life and death issues of the state as opposed to just helping somebody who's voting on life and death issues of the state. But tell me a little bit about your transition into that role. The biggest difference was uh, the difference between taking orders and giving orders. Uh, when I worked for Senator Robin Wright Jones, it was it was I did some of the same work. It was amazing to work for someone who cared about the community, and who and I was over her community relations and constituent service and make, connecting with people in the community and uh, making those relationships and doing the things that that she did out of that office and and helping to pass legislation. But as a uh, as a state representative in my, with my own office now, I have to forge that plan myself, and I have I have a legislative aide that ha- have to help lead and to help with my constituent service and things of that sort. So that was the hugest difference for me was creating my own plan and my own vision for uh, this district rather than uh, Senator Wright Jones's vision, and it's worked out pretty good so far. How did you know it was the right time to transition from being a staffer to actually running for an office? Well, uh, a state representative called me. And asked me to run, uh, and that state representative asked me where did I live at, and uh, who, just like that. Who was that state representative? That state representative was State Rep. Chris Carter at the time. Now Alderman Chris Carter. They went to college, I think, around the same time, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, he, at Alabama A&M University. Correct. He, he he was a senior when I was a freshman. And we actually pledged the same fraternity, and uh, we've been close ever since. And I believe Do- former Representative Don Calloway, Don Calloway was is- actually part of that fraternity at a different time. So there is a real legislative bumper crop of <laughs> Alabama A&M University people of that fraternity <laughs> in the Missouri legislature. There, there definitely is, and be looking out for the next one. But um, we, he called me, and he told me that uh, he, think, he thought that I was ready and that I should run. And I told him, well, wait, wait, I don't know about this district quite yet. And I told him I'd do my research and think about it a little more. Gave, him a f- gave me a few days, and I called him back. And I, what, what really, I guess, gave me the push, the extra push, was uh, Carter's belief in me, as well as the fact that there were issues surrounding youth and education that I knew I had, the, uh, I had done a lot of research on that, I, that were very passionate to me. And I, I knew I, that there were ideas that I couldn't get the senator to do that I wanted to do myself, and that's what really motivated me to run. Well, let's get into a little bit of the issues. Um, this is we're, we're getting into some breaking news, much more breaking news than we normally do, because the governor just had a, a press conference about in, an hour ago in, in Kansas, Kansas City. City. Um, he was talking about ethics reform, campaign finance issues, which shouldn't be too surprising because this year in his state of the state address, he said that if the Missouri legislature doesn't come up with some sort of ethics reform, he's going to go to a ballot initiative. Although he's and, been saying that Joe, every year. And Joe, yes, you, you've, <laughs> you've reported. He's been saying that every year for yeah. five years. I'm not Did, trivializing it. This, this, this was a big And issue. also, they might have a little bit of a difference of opinion with the presumptive Democratic gubernatorial nominee, Chris Coster, who voted in 2008 to get rid of campaign finance limits and has never repudiated that vote. <laughs> Expect to hear and read a lot about that in the Beacon St. Louis Public Radio in recent so, days. So, so uh, our guest here, do you have any thoughts as far as some of the proposals, which would basically, among other things, would uh, make it more difficult for a legislator to turn around and be a lobbyist and put some additional restrictions? Uh, so, I, well, I think those are good. So, of course, restrictions on the, on the revolving door would be good. Right. Of course, campaign contribution limits would be good. But I think the best legislation 
is is actually we saw in, uh, in Idaho a few years ago that I helped research with when I worked for State Rep. Mary Still, is where you'd have to recuse yourself from taking a vote if you accepted a campaign contribution from a uh, a certain entity. Uh, that's a, a bill that I'm actually researching, trying to work on, and, and that we're we're considering in my office in, in filing. But there are some extra nuances that go along with it. But what the bill pretty much does is similar to if you're a lawyer, you have to recuse yourself from a, a case if you have a family member or some interest in the case. If you're a legislator, you have to recuse yourself from a vote if you have some interest or uh, some, especially a campaign contribution interest in that vote. Who makes the decision if, if, if you're, you know, somewhat tainted by it? You know, I mean, you, if you take money from an industry, does that recluse you from this? Or who decides? Is it the lawmaker's personal discretion? Who, who decides in the Idaho situation? At, in Idaho, an Idaho situation, it would be – that, that's the nuances we're talking about. There's, there was a court case that, uh, that came up years ago, uh, made through the Idaho Supreme Court, and actually also made it through the, the, the U.S. Supreme Court and the law upheld. No, no one knows. I mean, at, at this point, it would be the industry. Um, but there are different states can take it a different way, and it's, it does come down to sometimes those administrative rules that the governor would then uh, have some control over. As Joe's kind of mentioned earlier, the governor has been calling for this some time. Um, numerous outlets have been calling for it some time. A lot of editorial boards have been very critical of the of the legislature for loose ethics. Do you think that there's going to be a fair amount of chance for it passing this year, or do you think that this is just going to be a large amount of noise but no real action? Well, it is an election year, and I would hate for anyone to be on the side of um, – reducing the voice of the people during an election year. Uh, I think it has a chance, uh, as any legislation. Uh, I think – so we've passed legislation like this before. Right. Um, 2010. Yes. Correct. And, and it got tossed up by the right. courts on technical yes. grounds. But. So, of course, I think it has it has a shot to pass again. This is a new, uh, new General Assembly, but there are some of the s- same views there, and there's still a lot of vigor for – Taking that, taking that extra influence out of, that out of politics and having people more focus on the people in their district. Now, one one thing I'd like to segue into something you do have experience on since you were a substitute teacher is the whole fight over um, the transfer programs. Um, this has led to some differences of opinion between you and the state senator over your district, <laughs> Jamila Nasheed, who <laughs> actually ousted your former boss. <laughs> so, you want to talk a bit about? You know, how how you see that shaping out the whole debate over the student transfer situation and um, how that's affected your relationship with some of your fellow legislators. Well, I'll first say, while me and Senator Nasheed may never agree on some educational issues, there are plenty of other issues we try to work together on, especially jobs. Uh, but with that, I believe that the the notion that sending kids – out of school districts in order to improve them, the school district itself is is totally ludicrous. It won't work. In fact, we've seen this. This is not nothing new. It, we've seen this for decades. We've had the VIC and the DSEG program in St. Louis City since the 60s, and it has not worked. It's, it's hurt the school district. We're still having those same problems. Uh, we have to find ways to infuse new uh, solutions and new ideas into the public the, the public school systems that are failing, like the St. Louis Public School District and Riverview and Normandy, instead of finding ways to uh, close them down, uh, create more deserts of education, and uh, keep kids from learning. Now, you you were as you as Joe alluded to, you were a substitute teacher at mm-hmm. St. Louis Public School, and I think a lot of 
people who move into the city who are my age, who have family, have a lot of trepidation about that district. And I'm not talking about the charter school aspect. Mm-hmm. They're talking about St. Louis Public School right now. From your experience, if could you tell a family with a child that you would recommend them putting their child into that system, or would you tell them to pursue other options at this point right now? I would definitely recommend that they put their child in St. Louis Public Schools. We have the, the and, and the SLPS system is the best public high school in the entire state, Metro High School. And, and and on top of that, we have some of the best middle schools in the entire state. And, we, and we've always had great elementary schools. So while there are some way, ways that St. Louis Public Schools can improve, there are quite a few successes. And I'm one of them. So uh, I would I would definitely recommend that someone put their child in St. Louis Public School. So what do you school. think needs to be done to kind of bump it up to the next level? And I want to add, it's, it's not just me. There are I, – I speak from a lot of research and a lot of uh, – a, a lot of uh, – talking to other experts. And we we know, actually St. Louis Public Schools, the state knows what needs to be done. First, we need positive behavior support. We have a, some issues in some elementary school classrooms, middle school classrooms, high school classrooms with classroom behavior. It takes a different type of teacher and different type of aspect to, to teach kids in St. Louis Public Schools. Second thing is uh, being able to recruit better teachers. And the superintendent backs me up with this all the time. And that means we have to increase teacher salaries. We have to increase teacher benefits. We have the lowest, second lowest teacher salary in the entire state. And, we have the, and we're the first, we're the biggest district. So uh, we have to be able to recruit teachers at a, at a better than the other school districts around us. Let me, that's the, and let me explain why that's the biggest ec- epidemic. There are over 1,000 teachers in the St. Louis uh, public school system, and every year we lose about 30% of them, not because of retention, but because they leave to other school districts. They leave to Webster, Ladue, Parkway School District. Mm -hmm. And when we lose them, we have to replace them with lesser experience, um, lesser prepared for the experience they're about to have teachers, and they're making the second worst salary in the the state. be, with that, we have that creates an unstable educational environment for our students, and it's hurting us every single year. Now, there's a more newsworthy education. Not, I mean, this is a newsworthy topic, transfers. I'm not trying yeah. to make that. <laughs> but there's something that's been in the news in the last couple of weeks, and that is the Education Commissioner, Chris Nicastro. Some of your Democratic colleagues have come out and flat out said she needs to resign because, A, there was an Associated Press article about her involvement in a ballot initiative mm-hmm. with teacher tenure. And B, as we kind of talked about earlier, there's this situation in Kansas City with the C-Trust. Is that mm-hmm. how you pronounce it? C-E-E slash trust that they're all up in arms about. Um, the Board of Education president seems to have her back, so to speak, and they're the people that can fire her, not the governor. There's kind of a misconception that yes. Nixon yeah. can just fire the there education is. director, but no, she, he, he can't. Yeah, no, he he cannot. Unless he did it behind the scenes and told them all to fire him. That's Indirect, but well, even then, yeah, I, I still think there's there's troubling aspect. But right. not to get off on a procedural tangent, what is kind of your your take on the situation? Do you have confidence in Chris Nicastro, and do you join your other colleagues in asking her to resign? I I tell my colleagues and I tell people I seldom have faith in a change in governance when it comes to uh, student outcomes. So, um, I, and at the same time, I Chris Nicastro has been in education much longer than I have. She's been involved in the fight of public education for a very long time, and there are certain solutions that I think we have to defer to her her experience. Uh, she's been very good to the St. Louis public school system. She's been very good to other school systems around around the state, and I I would I would hate to think that I know how to run Desi better than her. 
Uh, although I do have a vision for St. Louis public schools and some some solutions that I think will work, and uh, but I I tend to think about little Andre in Ashland Elementary School, and little Andre doesn't care who's the commissioner of, of Destiny Destiny, and, and nor does it really will it hurt hurt or help him who's the commissioner of Destiny at this point within the next year or two. So I um, I've tried to uh, curtail the solutions that can better uh, protect Andre and help him and help him do better. Boeing, special session, that was the big topic of the special session. Uh, Since then, in fact, this is one thing I do want to segue into, there were these tax credit incentives uh, approved for Boeing, and then since then, uh, the Legislative Black Caucus has really been after the governor because apparently there was uh, a private deal with some Republican senators Mm -hmm. to uh, reduce tax credits for low-income housing. So if you can talk about that as well. But kind of that whole aspect of it, how did you see it? I'll, I'll, so that was a very controversial uh, special session. I, I originally sided on voting no for the, the bill. I, I went to Jefferson City uh, considering, saying I'm most likely going to vote no for this. Why? Be- well, I hate the stench of corporate welfare, too. I don't, I, that, you know, that really stood out to me, the fact that I, I, I do not, I do not like uh, giving give outs to one company. I'm I'm not not too in favor of, of uh, I guess picking winners and losers as some of my uh, Republican colleagues would yeah, say. Yeah, like Brian Nieves said that exact same thing. So yeah, c- congratulations. I, I would, but I would. Uh, I, I'm in, at the same time, there are plenty of businesses in my district that could use use help that don't get help from the state. Uh, and for them to see where one company could could make a pitch, and that we could all jump up for a special session at the same time. And I thought there were more emergency uh, issues like education, and normally school district like crime in in, in my north side of my district. We need a special session for those. So I, I was a little, in a sense, uh, je- jealous that Boeing was getting all this attention. Was this kind of a uh, uh, an example of the too big too big to fail? Phenomenon where nobody wanted to upset Boeing. They wanted to do whatever they could to uh, encourage them to expand their operations here, but also not to insult them because they didn't want to lose the operations they already have here. I would say too cool to lose. Too we, cool to lose. They haven't. They they we we haven't failed yet. We have they they're not here yet. So we're not we're not in a sense. It's it was a competition that we wanted to be a part of, and that that I'm glad that we made ourselves a part of. And I'll tell you why. When and during a special session, what we realized was that we are just expanding already existing programs. Correct. And at the same time, Boeing will not receive any state tax dollars until they actually create a job and pay someone. Uh, when I was campaigning, when I said we went around district five times, the number one issue that came up was, I need a job. We need jobs. We need more jobs. We need jobs. And unlike the uh, Republicans in Washington, D.C., we actually were trying to do something about that down here in Missouri. Uh, we we actually we, we thought it's best that if we took it took the chance and made and gave this uh, I guess these incentives to Boeing that they that they'll actually come and that'd be that'll be better than if we didn't take the chance and all of a sudden when we're when our constituents are asking us about jobs and they know that we didn't do what we had to do to to try to incentivize them. 
they uh, we would have let them down. And I didn't want to go back to my district and, and tell people that I'm about jobs, but you know that that big deal that would have got probably got you a job. I just couldn't couldn't do that. And at the same time, we wouldn't give any state tax dollars until they gave a job to someone in my district. Well, you mentioned corporate welfare, and I'm glad that you did because this situation to me brings back eerie parallels to Bombardier mm-hmm. in 2008. You know what I'm talking I know about? Exactly you're, what I'm you're nodding your head, and it, it, you know both these things passed by wide margins. Um, you know, Democrats and Republicans voted for it. Um, but I remember, for example, Jeff Harris, who's now the governor's policy director, calling it corporate welfare bombardier. That was $240 million over eight years. This is $1.7 million billion dollars over, over 23 years. years. Yeah, in 23 years. So why was and, – and, and I must add, Democrats ran campaign ads against some Republicans that year for voting for that. <laughs> so what is really the difference philosophically between these two things? They seem very similar – trying to use tax incentives to get an airliner here, are they essentially the same as far as, as in philosophy, in it, your opinion? It would also be similar to the Fort Clay Como. Mm-hmm. And we actually did get that. We got, we got that plant, and it has worked out very good for those in Kansas City. And I, I, I think that's the example we want to use more mm-hmm. uh, because it was a success. We, we didn't know we were going to get it or not. It, got, it was a success, and now it's, the people are actually employed. And we're hoping we can do that here in St. Louis. What many have... And I would say what many have said about this project was it's like bringing Chrysler back to St. Louis. And there are tons of former Chrysler workers out there that would would tell their state legislator, hey, if you can bring something like that back here, you, you do what you have to do to make sure that we can get those kind of jobs do, again. Do people not want to mention Bombardier situation because it wasn't successful? Of course. <laughs> I think that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. But the whole black, black caucus fight, which is generated afterwards because of the concern that the governor privately agreed to work to reduce low-income housing tax credits. Do you have any thoughts about that? How big of a deal is that? That's a huge deal to me. I'm I'm furious about that. Uh, I don't like to be a part of anyone's private scheme, in a sense. I I, I do think that some members of the Black Caucus feel like we've been, and I and I hope some members of the of the entire legislature feel like they've been used. Uh, there, there, that was never explained to us uh, when when the governor came and pitched it to us in our in, in our private in our meetings. Um, but I can tell you this: I I, I wouldn't go for a deal like that. Uh, we were told that it, we were creating incentives, expanding incentive programs. And that there was no upfront cost. There was, in a sense, it was everyone came together uh, for uh, the greater good of the people, and for uh, no upfront cost and no, and no cost to us straight up. And we didn't hear, didn't hear anything about low income housing credits. Uh, so of course we are not happy about that. And for the governor to play games with a program that has uh, helped poor people in 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 the, in the city of St. Louis as well as across the state, I don't I don't think that's uh, right. Do you think there'll be some legislative blowback after that i know for and not to trudge on your answer but obviously there's a lot of people in the missouri house who are very much in favor of keeping the low income tax credit and the historic tax credit the same senate has a difference of opinion do you think this is going to make it harder to pass any changes to those programs there's all it's always been hard to pass those those uh, changes to those programs I, I i would say this i don't think it's going to change anyone's uh, decision about those programs uh I haven't worked in both chambers. Uh, I think it's it just seems it feels like a small win for the Senate and 
you know, maybe it just it, it, what it does for me, it, it keeps my ears open for anything that's going to happen in, in, in the next session. We didn't even bring up those credits last session. And for this to happen, helps, it helps me get ready for next session. We should probably mention before we move on that Boeing is back in talks with the union in Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, Washington State. Yes, mm-hmm. Washington State. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, if it ends up that Boeing remains in Washington, does that mean that Missouri got played to you? How would you look at that? Yes, it does. It does. I, I can. I will say that uh, we were told by uh, folks, uh, by the governor's office, and in, in, in some of the folks leading the charge, that they were confident that we were in play, and that they were they wouldn't bring this to us unless uh, they knew that we that we had a good shot at getting uh, the deal, and or at least part of the deal, even the wing, uh, but. If if they were wrong, I think they have more to lose than we do as as state legislators. We we took the information that was in front of us, uh, and I believe we took the, the a good risk in trying to create jobs and in, in trying to make an effect on the biggest priority in the legislature right now. But if if it goes back to Washington, we will I I will definitely be more careful about uh, some of these issues moving forward. So one of the other topics we wanted to ta- talk about. Um, was crime in St. Louis, because not only is it something that you're interested in, but I know from talking when you were running for re-election that that was a major focus that you wanted to bring. Um, as a resident of the city of St. Louis, even a, you know, uh, namby-pamby area like St. Louis Hills, crime is still an important issue for our city, um, regardless of where you live. And I just wanted to get your sense of what the state legislature can do about it. What is the legislative role that is different, for for example, from the Board of Aldermen or city government? So city government and local government mostly handles public safety issues. But I think where the legislature can definitely help out is funding programs that work. Uh, fun, ho- hopefully funding a few more police officers, but of course fl- funding community involvement programs. So the New York Times just wrote an article on uh, not too long ago on crime in the city of St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And they mentioned a solution, a solution called the Neighborhood Ownership Mile. that actually started in my district in the 6th Ward in Lafayette Square. And I've actually have the, only, have the only bill in the Missouri legislature that funds the Neighborhood Ownership Model. The Neighborhood Ownership Model is a program where it uses citizen patrol and victim support, um, where citizens actually help patrol their neighborhoods with the police. And then they actually attend court cases with uh, with the victims that are in their neighborhood. So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's not just a crime-fighting program. It's a community-building program, and it's worked so much. Mm-hmm. But the problem with the program is that it's not funded at the local level, at the, at the state level, or at the federal level. It's the only person that actually works helps it out was is uh, prosecuting attorney Jennifer Joyce, who gives some time from her staff to actually uh, help coordinate some of the events and some of the victim support parts. Well, it's interesting you mentioned those things because when I was writing my uh, sprawling odysseic work on Cherokee Street, one of the one of the neighborhoods that encompasses Cherokee Street is Gravelway Park, and a lot of those things that you mentioned, court watching, you know, just looking out for sort of things. That has been done in that neighborhood for years, and you saw, at least statistically, a drop in crime. Now, the caveat when people point out crime statistics is, well, yes, maybe there's 800 crimes instead of 900 crimes, but if you're a victim of a crime, statistics don't matter. But do you think that those types of things can help, or do you think it's going to require more than just that? So I'm glad you mentioned Gravelway Park neighborhood because that's actually the neighborhood I grew up in. Right. And my father was actually a block captain when I was a child. And sometimes I credit my need for public service from 
watching him work when I, when I was younger. And of course those programs work. Community involvement along with more police participation definitely works in, in, in defeating crime. Um, so once again, if, if how the state government can help with that is just funding those programs and, and, and help to spread them. With just half a million dollars, we can cover the entire city with more community involvement programs. Do you think St. Louis has a national image problem with crime? Or do you, do you think it's become a, a blemish on our city? Yes. Yes. Uh, Honestly, yeah, we, we do. At the same time, uh, we, know, we here in St. Louis know uh, how to defeat it. And we here in St. Louis, in St. Louis, know the truth about the crime in our areas. Uh, now we just have to face it head on and 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 tackle it, and not wait for other areas to tackle it for us. Let's talk a little bit about your bill, though. Uh, how much money are we talking about, and what would that funding go toward? So uh, we're talk we're going for half a million dollars, and that funding would go towards creating su- police substations in the neighborhoods. So this is five hundred thousand. You're talking about, about. Mm-hmm. yeah, five hundred thousand dollars, and uh, so. Let's, let's backtrack on where that police substation number comes from. When uh, when Chief Dan Isom uh, was chief of police, he mm-hmm. made a commitment to the neighborhood ownership model program. He said that if you uh, if a neighborhood develops that program, he'd put a police substation in your neighborhood. But the neighborhood ha- would have to be on the hook for the nine thousand dollars per year to afford that substation. Mm-hmm. What uh, what else Chief Isom also did was create neighborhood uh, liaisons. In those neighborhoods, and so those things actually cost money. The more, another, the, those right. would be neighborhood coordinators that were actually police that people could actually call on their cell phone and talk to and say, "Hey, there's something suspicious going on in my neighborhood." So what I'm helping to do is bring state money to to afford that nine thousand dollars per year. So with uh, the certain neighborhoods in 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 our the neighborhoods that need a police substation in our uh, in our area, they can uh, take advantage of half a million will cover the entire city of well, St. Louis. Now. What, my one question about that is how can you make it specific to just St. Louis? What happens if Kansas City wants that? And if so, does that kind of spread the money too thin for it to be effective? Well, my, as of right now, my bi- my bill goes directly to the city of St. Louis. Uh, last year, I uh, made it towards uh, high crime areas. Uh, and, and I don't mind increasing funding at all for a program like that to include any other areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think it's important that those funds go to high crime areas like maybe Kansas City and there are some other areas in, in uh, rural Missouri that could use it. But you'd have to ask the, the speaker if he'd like for me to increase the budget for that. But at the same time, $1.5 million is still only about 0.2% of our budget. Do you think you'll be successful? Are you on the budget committee or are you on a different types of committees that you could get this done? I'm on the local government committee, and, mm-hmm. we, and I think that this is a definitely a local government issue when it comes to public safety. And I, I think it's it's a very a good possibility that that's something I can do within my time in the legislature. Now, do you think local – I mean, you're coming from a state – legislative perspective. Mm-hmm. There's really only so much you can do on this issue. You're, 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 this is a specific example. Do you think local officials here, be it the mayor, board of aldermen, comptroller, recorder of deeds, from mm-hmm. what are they doing everything you think is needed and possible for this crime situation to be under control? I think uh, within the scope of, of government, I think that the funding that is there, they're doing what they can. Um, that's where that's where my solution came in. There, I think that the best way the state can help is to provide funding to the local government and help them uh, use that to, for programs that work. Well, I, I guess this is your first term. I, I'm assuming you're running for re-election yes. next year. Mm-hmm. Who knows if you're going to have another crazy primary? <laughs> we'll have to see by by January or this, this or, or February. But 
if, if you do get reelected, you get reelected a couple more times. What are you kind of hoping is the the impact of your legislative career? If you could just do something and say, I did this as a legislator, what would it be? So the the one le- I've told all my constituents this is so the one legislative thing I believe that I can get past is the neighborhood ownership model. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of a lot of things in education I, that I'm really working hard to to get past a lot of things with, as far as job programs I'm really hard, working hard to get past it I'm in a super minority and <laughs> um, but the neighborhood ownership model is something that I think that that's cheap enough and uh, that this city believes in and I think that people on the other side of the aisle can believe in but I, what's important when you're in a super minority is also your community work and what's very important to me is the youth in our community um, there are community accomplishments that I hope to have Right now, we're we're, help, we're trying to. My office is is helping kids in our district sign up for youth programs. The biggest thing that got cut in the past twenty years by some of my, some, the other side of the legislature was after school programs nationally. We've we've cut after school programs. We're wondering why crime has risen in in youth and why there's so much high youth unemployment. So I'm trying to help kids sign up for after school programs in my area. I'm also trying to help kids uh, get their grades up and always motivate and mentor ki- any kid that I see. So youth are very important to me. And, I, and to me, within in eight years, if the kid that's 10 now is graduated from high school and he's 18 and he's ready to go into college and he, he, and he can look at me and say, you know, Mr. Butler, I didn't know if I could have did that without you. That, I think that would be a great accomplishment for my, my term. Well, to close us out here, you can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter at, at @csmcdaniel. Jason, you can follow J Rosenbaum and Joe at J Manis. That's J M A N N I E S. And representative, you can be followed on Twitter at at Mo Michael Butler. I figured you had a Twitter. Some of our guests do not have a Twitter, but they are they would be much older. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> They would be. Yes. I don't think that that's I think it should I think it should be noted that um Joe is outnumbered by <laughs> people who are under 30 because uh for, the, I, for maybe the first time. I, I'm just show. I'm just happy that I'm I'm I that Chris and I are are now in the majority exactly. right yes. now. So. <laughs> exactly. Well, on that note, we'll be back next week. Until then, so long. Thank you. So long. <laughs>